Welcome to Gross Anatomy. Welcome to Gross Anatomy. Thanks. Good to be here. Yeah. Um, where we discuss the sights, smells, and sounds of medicine and how it relates mm-hmm. to pop culture, mm-hmm. movies, TV, the world around us, books, and mm-hmm. what else? Well, uh, so much more. We're going <laughs> to yeah. get into it. <laughs> and uh, I'm Dr. Jason Cohen. And? I'm Lauren Taylor, and we have a special guest today. Special guest, my, my friend and colleague, Dr. Noah Kraft who we have on for absolute, absolutely zero reason whatsoever. <laughs> um, but, but what led me into, into you know, we, we don't have any real format for this, even though Lauren tries to have a format, and she always gives me an outline, and then I deviate and always screw things up, basically. Um, but what, what prompted me to think about go, having you, especially this week, um, as our guest, Dr. Kraft, what are you drinking, by the way? Um, this is a scotch and soda with a twist of lime. Is it really? <laughs> yeah. Nice. It's fi- it's five forty-five somewhere. No, it's okay. It oh, looks sure. very refreshing. Thank you. Nice. It's, it's well, the mason jar that gives it that wholesome farm fresh. Like the look. mason jar. Yeah. Right. Unfortunately, I'm not drinking Kahlua and cream. It's just uh, it's just an iced <laughs> coffee. So, but I but you're you're a dermatologist. Is your is is why and how you're a doctor? Correct. Um, that is correct. I, clinically, I'm a dermatologist. Yeah. Right. But yet you're so, and yet you're a business guy, you're a dermatologist, you're a business guy, and you're a science guy, you're a research guy. You're like a, a triple threat, basically. Well, yeah. right. And you're a PhD, right? So you're a double doctor. Double doctor. And, um, I'm also a reverend. It's a, a well-kept secret about myself. I've married several people, so... <laughs> So you mean you have multiple spouses? Uh, no, I, ha- I haven't married uh, just but the one wife so far for myself. You said you've married several people. I have, uh, as the reverend, <laughs> the officiant. That's awesome. Um, How many people have you have you wed? I believe two, four, six, eight, four weddings. Wow. Any funerals? No funerals. Nope. Nice. See, I, it's all about the pop culture. So that's a movie, four weddings and a funeral. Have you seen it? <laughs> I've seen that back in the I day. I love that movie. That it's a great back. movie. We recently rewatched it. Hugh Grant. Have you seen it, Lauren? I have, yes. I don't yeah. think I like it as much as you, but it's pretty good. <laughs> the, well, the reverend scene is probably one of the best parts of it, when he's, mar- when he's so nervous and he's, and he's messing up and flubbing his lines. Mm. Have you had that experience, Reverend, reverend Kraft? Uh, I believe all my weddings were perfect. I, I didn't botch anything. That's my nice. recollection. But I, as you know, I'm a, a futurist, an optimist, a delusional optimist at times. So I, I have selective memories for the positive. <laughs> Good. So what, what, um, what came first? The chicken. <laughs> nice. Uh, perfect. Let's see. I, I um, mean, what came first for you? Well, Being- I would just say that, um, you know, I grew up in a small town, and my only uh, where in Maine and Massachusetts, um, small towns, I should say. Um, my only role model as a physician was a town doctor from the next town over, who was the only town doctor for multiple towns. Wow. So fa- family doc, no specialist, no nothing. Um, that was my only role model as a physician. And when I got to college, um, 
I was interested in science. Um, and my first summer job after my freshman year was in a, a research lab at, at, um, at one of the hospitals in Rhode Island. And um, so it was my first exposure to medicine and science together. And I, I really fell in love with the combination, but it, it quickly reshaped my worldview of being like a small town doctor taking care of everything and everybody to really focusing my energy on science and transforming the way we practice as physicians and bringing the two together. So ever since that first research experience, I really haven't fallen far from my core fabric as a scientist. And medicine is the practice of how I engage with humanity and the world. Um, but science is my core being. The third thing is the entrepreneur, like being a business person that's new to me over the last eight years. Um, which is, it's an exciting form factor of how to put your energy into use. Um, but um, that's a new kind of meta self for me. I, I think of myself as a scientist who practices as a physician um, to implement that science. And then now the form factor of, of maximal impact for society is that of an entrepreneur and a change agent through business. Wow, that sounds great. I like that whole tagline. That, that's really good. <laughs> a lot of our listeners are pre, you know, you know, I run that pre-med program that we had you as a guest. So a lot of our listeners are <clears throat> pre-med students. So what's interesting to me is how you went from your experience was kind of small town, every kind of uh, doc. And then you went in terms of your medicine practice, total opposite direction, interestingly, into like sub-specialized dermatology. Yeah. There are no dermatologists out in the countryside, I can assure right. you. <laughs> yeah. in, in Los Angeles, you could find one on every corner, but out in the country. Exactly. <laughs> so how did you, how and why did you find dermatology? Like it, your mentor probably had nothing to do with dermatology. How did, how did that happen? Yeah. My mentor was a, a pharmacologist by PhD and, and an internist. <clears throat> um, in college, that is. And then I, I worked in cardiology later and other and HIV research. I, I had a lot of scientific mentors, but dermatology I came to fall in love with when I was doing an externship <clears throat> in medical school in Brazil. Um, so I, I had, through science, fallen in love with the, the interaction of microbes or pathogens and the host or the human in this case, um, and how we get along with our microbes and our microbiome and and parasites. And so that was my research interest was microbiology, immunology. But then when I went to work in Brazil, I worked in an infectious disease hospital. And um, in the rest of the world, dermatology equals infectious disease. You know, there's in the US, there's Botox and pimples and whatnot. Um, but in the rest of the developing world, and you know, most of the original dermatologists used to be called dermatologists and venereologists. So sexually transmitted diseases, things like that. So it was a fascinating experience. I really fell in love with the skin as a reflection of the inner workings of the body. And it's also a wonderful field from a being a doctor standpoint, meaning your patients are typically very satisfied because you can fix them very quickly with their, what rashes or skin cancer, or, um, whatever problems you're dealing with. So it's very satisfying and Importantly, as a scientist, the practice of dermatology, you know, as a surgeon, you have to spend hours and hours in the, in the OR and be available on call all the time. Dermatology is really focused. You can 
practice and then do science for most of, most of your time. So it, it allows a freedom to operate um, beyond just the practice, which is, which is nice for scientists. I and think, why dermatology as opposed <clears throat> to infectious disease? Um, you know, when I applied to residency, I applied to both internal medicine, thinking I would do infectious disease and dermatology simultaneously. I will say, you know, when you pick a specialty like dermatology, you, unlike internists and surgeons, you're not, quote, a real doctor. <laughs> you accept that you're a niche specialist. So I, I fully embrace that I am a specialist of the skin and I'm very good at it. But if you're having chest pain and a heart attack or you need your gallbladder out, you do not want to come see me. <laughs> <laughs> what about, you know, what's in, you know, I also, your interest of disease through the skin, you know, you, you could tell a lot about a person looking at the skin. But, um, but it's interesting in the exam of a patient is really taking note of their skin. And one thing I tend to like to do is also look at a patient's feet just because you could get a sense of circulation and, you know, look at their, you know, the condition of their skin and their toes and all of that. Um, but it's a little different from dermatology. So how did you go? So what, what happened first for you? Did you first start doing research or did you first say, let me do a business idea, you know, in, in your journey to, to be where you are? Yeah. Um, like many people, I was born and raised as an academic researcher. Um, so I, you know, grew up, quote, grew up at UCLA. I started my lab at Harbor UCLA, um, and LA Biomed is the research institute there. Um, so immediately after residency and postdoc, I started my lab in the academic setting. We in what? Were, um, the research. Yeah. The research was focused on. Um, cancer immunology or cancer immunotherapy and vaccines, and then parasite vaccines. So similar vaccine technology for cancer and parasites, believe it or not. Um, and so we had multiple successful NIH grants and foundation grants. Was it, was it dermatologic or not really? You know, it's a, it's a great question. And it highlights how I think of the skin as really a reflection of deeper disease and processes. The cancer we worked on was melanoma but we worked on metastatic melanoma, advanced right. oncology. Um, and then the parasite I mostly focused on was leishmaniasis, which is a skin infection, but it is the second biggest killer, visceral leishmaniasis, second biggest killer besides malaria. Um, so they're both systemic diseases where... Some... Wait, since the show is called Gross Anatomy, tell, yeah. us, tell us what leishmaniasis, how, how does it present? That's one of the that's one of the fun ones, right? One of the good ones. Yeah. So leishmaniasis, you get um, you're exposed to it by the bite of a fly in the tropics. Typically, most tropical countries have leishmaniasis of one form or another. It's very widespread. So you're bitten by a fly. Um, what kind of fly? is it? The sand fly? I'm trying to remember my. Nice. Is it a sand fly? Good. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, so, so you're bitten by a fly, and that transmits the, the um, amastigote form. It's one form of it. It's a single-cell protozoan, and that gets inside of your macrophages and starts to multiply. Um, and so it multiplies within your cells like a parasite, like it is a parasite, and um, it multiplies, multiplies. It Initially, f there's multiple forms of it, but the two most common are cutaneous, or skin, and visceral, or in right. organs. And so cutaneous leishmaniasis, you get these horrible looking ulcers 
They're basically like sores and scabs on your skin wherever you were bitten, typically. But it spreads through your lymph system, so you get multiple sores all over your body. The visceral form, you don't have any skin manifestation, and it just shows up you know, years later in your liver, your bone marrow, your spleen, and you appear cachectic, like a, like as if you had metastatic cancer. Um, but when you're diagnosed, it's throughout your, your lymph system and your spleen and liver. Um, so it's, it's a deadly disease, the visceral form. Have you ever seen it in a patient? No, many times. I worked extensively in Colombia and Brazil and parts of Africa. So Wow. You've seen both forms? Yep, absolutely. What's that, Lauren? There's no treatment. You just die. Like there's no, nothing that can be done. Um, there are some treatments for visceral leishmaniasis that aren't uh, optimal, meaning the treatments themselves are very toxic. Some of the most common treatments called antimony. It's a heavy metal, it's cardiotoxic, um, not great. There have been some advances recently of um, amphotericin is used in the United States for visceral leishmaniasis. Um, and Amphotericin is an antifungal, also known when we were going through our training as amphoterrible, because it had <laughs> right. such horrible side effects. The, the medicine itself was like a dangerous medicine that you'd worry, you know, would in and, in and of itself hurt the patient. And so it was referred to as amphoterrible. You remember yeah. that? Yeah, yeah. and I, I remember as an intern taking care of oncology patients who had had fungal infections. And yeah. Staying up all night with them, shaking chills on Amphoterrible. Yeah. Uh, and it really, that that's the treatment for Leishmaniasis. So it's awful. It's an awful disease and it's awful yeah. treatment. So I don't there's know still how much a lot of used, research in it. I don't think Amphotericin is used that much anymore, is it? For fungal? In general. Uh, for fung I think they have better, less toxic stuff, but I, I could be wrong. Uh, I don't do a lot of critical care anymore. <laughs> I and stay out of the hospital mostly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So initially, I ran a, an academic research lab. We're very successful with government funding, foundation funding. We had, you know, I've published over 50 papers and multiple patents. It was a really exciting time. I loved being an academic researcher. It's and you love doing research. You loved, you I know, love like, doing trials and studies. You like that. Um, I especially love the bench science and, and translational science, but clinical studies. I'm jealous. Too. I, I, I never, I never was able to, to do that. I don't, I don't know. I, I, I think it's maybe I didn't have patience, right? You need a certain amount of patience to set it up, to do it, to tolerate it not working, to not getting the results and do it. I, I don't think I had that, right? Yeah, I think. You know, when I talk to um, young people about a future of being a scientist, uh, you have to have the core fabric of being an explorer. And yeah. being someone willing to run into dead ends and things that don't work, you're often in a dark room. You don't know where the edges of the room are. You're at the frontiers of knowledge. And when you're exploring, often you're out at sea alone. And so you have to be right. patient. And But, you know, when you come upon a, an incredible new island of knowledge and you're the only person that's ever been on that island, yeah. it's, it's an amazing experience. And from a societal standpoint, I always reflect back to think what a wonderful society we've built that allows people to be scientists as, as a career to explore yeah. just knowledge. And that's your actual job. Um, yeah. There are manifestations for society, but you know, credit our, our, our world and the countries that we built that allow people to be scientists for a living. So you said you were working on vaccines, right? Yeah. So do you, 
as to, I, I know I'm kind of going somewhere else, but as someone who's worked on vaccines, are you like, oh, I could make the COVID vaccine in no time. I could, I could, I could do this. Um, no, I, yeah, no. <laughs> no. Um, but it's interesting, um, you know, we could skip ahead later to, to what I'm doing now. And one of the companies I'm an advisor for is, a, it's, it's called Next Generation AI, and it's focused on human-like reasoning at scale. So getting the computer to compile all knowledge bases and, and solve problems for us like a human brain does, it, truly reasoning. Um, and so one of the, the last few months, our, our company has been focused on um, really trying to help all the people developing vaccines and treatments for COVID understand what they're going to do and having the computer help them figure that out. The human mind is powerful, but we, you know, we can only uh, process like seven to nine concepts at once. But for example, we're our, our current knowledge network of just one project we're working on right now considers 180,000 concepts simultaneously. I think and, I taught it that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's, it's fascinating because my background in vaccine development the company's trying to develop them. I, I speak their language. I know what they're doing. But to make the decisions around which antigens to use and which patients to give them to, that is some hard decision-making. And having a computer help you is, is fascinating. So my background in vaccines is helpful, but I can't say I could easily come up with a vaccine right, right. now. Well, you know, since, we're talk- since it's hard to not talk about COVID, corona, and, and we're leading into it a little bit, there are people... Um, who, well, I have two questions. A, you know, the optimists say we may have a vaccine by November. What are your thoughts about that? Even though that's by no means what I wanted to talk about today. Uh, Two or B is there are people who are saying, oh yeah, even if they come up with a vaccine, how are we going to know there's not going to, you know, it's not going to turn us into zombies like the movie I Am Legend and and have major side effects. Um, what, What are your thoughts on both of those things? Yeah. Um, so I'm in the optimist camp. Um, sometime between November and January, we will probably have uh, hundreds of millions of doses of vaccines. Um, one of the amazing things about this pandemic and um, government and institutional responses, for the first time, um, we're betting on manufacturing and R&D at the same time. So what that means is companies building vaccines that we think work based on the immunology we're simultaneously paying billions of dollars to manufacturing them, hoping that they actually work. So I'm confident we won't be putting those vaccines into lots of people until we know they work. So right. after phase three trials, um, but uh, which ones of them will work, how effective they'll be. It's not like it's going to be a panacea and wipe everything out, but I certainly hope it'll keep people from dying is the main, right. main impact of the vaccines. One thing, and I could be wrong, one thing I think is happening more, for the, more than ever now is a real collaboration between scientists because of this vaccine. Is that true? Is, or is that just my imagination of things? No, uh, it's, it's experientially true personally and then uh, observationally from the news. Um, but to give you one example, um, the company I was referring to before is called thinkingnodelife.ai. And we put together this incredible collaboration over the past two weeks between three massive research institutions, internationally recognized scientists and clinicians that had never worked before. And all it took was a few emails to say, we've got this incredible AI. 
you have this incredible sequencing analytics, you have the clinical patience and expertise, let's do something. There was no hemming and hawing. People were just like, yep, let's do it. And that didn't happen before. It used to take a lot of arm twisting. And well, it also took a pandemic. Yeah, well, there's that. <laughs> right. So since you're talking about AI, which is another topic I kind of wanted to hit on, um, so, so that's something that, that you're involved in, and, and that was something that you did uh, with your dermatology. You started dermatology AI kind of company, right? No. Um, the first companies that we started, you're, you're back after I left academia, you mean? Your, your dermatology company is, is something that could, you tell me, what is it? Yeah, so the, the different companies I've worked at or started, so the, the first one that I, I helped start, I wasn't one of the founders, but part of the founding team is called DirectDerm. And DirectDerm is a teledermatology company focus on taking care of the underserved populations of the country in California in particular. Um, so that was ahead of its time. It's, it's now one of the largest um, teledermatology companies. Um, but we were banging out the software and the practice of telemedicine before it was even reimbursed. How many um, years ago? <clears throat> oh, geez. We started that in 2011, I think. So nine years ago. Or, wow. That really is pretty amazing how ahead of your time you were. Yeah. So that was the first one we did as a group as uh, quite a few MD PhDs that started that all dermatologists. And then when I, when I left academia, I became the chief medical officer for a company called Visual DX. And that might be what you're thinking of. Visual DX is a um, diagnostic decision support software for physicians and now for patients. You can enter in symptoms and exposures and medicines, and it tells you all the possible diagnoses for that patient or yourself. Um, right. and, and that recently, we've embedded AI into it. So we've launched a product called Ask Asa, where you, a consumer, can point the phone at your skin. It will analyze your skin and give you, ask you some questions and tell you the possible diagnoses. So that, a, that AI is profound and awesome. Um, the company Apple highlighted Ask Asa and Visual DX in one of the um, Tim Cook uh, product launches on stage. So it, it's a really powerful uh, implementation of using structured knowledge and artificial intelligence to help make better diagnoses. Most of it still hinges on the doctor making the final decision and guiding the patient on what to do next. Um, but it definitely is like an extended brain for the doctor or the patient. What's interesting is you're, you're a dermatologist and you're involved in AI, correct? Correct. So, and so what's interesting about that is you're – might AI at one point in time put certain doctors out of business or not so much put them out of business, but maybe um, take away a lot of their roles, like maybe in dermatology, maybe in radiology, looking at simple x-rays and things like that. Do you see that? Do you see that happening? Um, I mean, it will, it will probably play a role in making our jobs better and making us better physicians. Most of us involved in these companies don't, I mean, at least not in the next few decades, don't believe that the computer will replace the physician um, because the physician is really meant to be a guide. And, right. the, and the computer is just a better digital processor of knowledge. But you're as a care provider and a kind of psychological counsel to the patient making these decisions, there's an incredible role for understanding the implications of what the decisions mean. Um, and so I don't, I don't foresee 
AI taking over many doctors' roles, um, if any. Um, it really makes us into better, uh, better healers and better care providers because you don't have to rely on your brain for all the hard decisions. Like you can count on the computer to help you. That's the way most of us at VisualDX envision it. Um, and I mean, at this point, VisualDX and other systems, you're, it would be like, if I don't know if there are any doctors out there who don't check drug dosages on their phone. Like if you're out there not checking standard things with computers, or if you think you can still memorize anybody's phone number except your wife, <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, it, we, we like to use computers to extend our minds, not replace them. Right. So, so there's one other thing I want to talk about before we deviate a little bit too. I'm deep, I'm all over the place. So I know one of your passions is, is the microbiome. Correct. What is that? What, you know, everybody's talking about that these days, the microbiome, the micro, I love the microbiome. I'm into the lay people. Everybody's talking about it. What does it really mean? And, and, and is it a real thing or is it still theoretical? I mean, I know it's a real thing, but is it something that could actually be dealt with or it's still academic right now? Yeah, no, it is so real and so profoundly important to human life and, and animal life in general. Um, I, I, would, I don't want to get too expansive in philosophy, but it is uh, the microbes are the original organisms that uh, populated the planet and climbed out of the sea. The fun fungus is the first microorganisms to get out of the sea. So let me give you a nice segue to a couple other topics. Uh, okay. Talk about favorite movies of recent, I should say. Okay. For those people who have any interest in incredible photography or fungus or evolution or microbes, the movie Fantastic Fungi, as in fungus, um, yeah. you, you can rent it on Vimeo. It's a 90-minute documentary. Um, it, it's it, hovers around the central character, Paul Stamets, who's one of the leading mycologists of the world. But it talks about the coevolution of fungus or fungi as uh, critically important to plant life, animal life, and kind of our coexistence on the planet. It briefly touches on psychedelic properties of, my, of mycology and fungus as well. Um, but Which is where I want to head later. We will. Um, right. But in general, this, the film is an incredible documentary about how fungus was the first organism to come out of the, out of the ocean. It provides all of the enzymes that break down everything on the planet to turn everything into soil and critically important fungus is the largest organism ever discovered on the planet. So they discovered some fungus that are three miles long in the forests of Oregon. Um, and fungus is the way that trees communicate with their offspring, share nutrients between trees, talk to each other, and basically communicate through the forest floor. There are insects that live on the fungus underneath the forest floor. It is a wild documentary. It's and like Avatar. It is. It's exactly like Avatar. And even if you just like to watch time-lapse photography, it's incredible just to watch it. But okay, it's, cool. It's, it's a must-see movie for anyone that is interested in co-evolution. Did you and, have anything to do with the movie? No. No, I just watched okay. it. Um, Fantastic fungi. Okay. Yeah. And, um, and it, it speaks to this notion of the, the reason I'm bringing it up is it speaks to this notion of the microbes or the microbiome on our bodies and between plants and animals and et cetera, as a critical way that we've co-evolved. They were there first. 
they're the oldest organisms and we have co-evolved with them. So it's not surprising that humans would interact with microbes on our body and also interact with plants and co-evolved fungi that have medicinal properties to us, either to control our microbiome or to help us with our whole organism. Um, it, it's just a starting point for people interested in, fun in fungus and co-evolution. But microbiome means bacteria, oh, yeah. viruses, and fungi? The, what, what is it? Yeah, the, there are probably different definitions of it. The way I think of it is any microbes that tend to coexist on us or in us, and most people include viruses and phage in the microbiome. Um, there's the virome and the you know, you can subdivide it, but generally speaking, viruses, phage, um, fungi, bacteria, the, that's the microbiome in general. Um, if you get fringe, you can think about um, microscopic mites and parasites, things like that. But most people just consider bacteria, fungus, virus, and phage. And you sh you would be a, uh, interested to know there's about 10 times as many microbe cells on you and in you as human cells. So your, your human cells are only one-tenth of your existence. Um, and that should tell you something about how important they are. Um, they make all the enzymes that break down food in your gut. They control all the infections on your skin. Um, so the healthy microbes are called the commensals. These are things that live on you and in you throughout your life. A lot of them are acquired through the vaginal canal during birth, but you can acquire them through you know breastfeeding, skin-to-skin -skin contact. And... It's a, it's a fascinating uh, story that's just unfolding for us as scientists. An, another fascinating company I advise is called Symbiome. Um, and Symbiome is focused on developing um, uh, medicinal or commensal microbes from the uh, indigenous peoples of the, the tribes of Brazil, Colombia, Venezuela, uh, known as Yanomami. And so the Yanomami are... Oh, I love getting edamame at the, from <laughs> sushi places. Exactly. You break yeah. them apart. So the Yanomami are this uh, incredible tribe of people that is the most untouched tribe of people um, on the planet, we believe. Um, but so there's still... Um, it, they have, there's a lot of documentaries out there, so I won't, I won't over, over speak about it. But um, Symbiome has been working with the Yanomami people to help study the microbes that are on their skin. So these are, my, these are people and microbes that have never seen antibiotics ever. And the things we're discovering and developing, hopefully, to bring back that kind of primal relationship to microbes or co-evolution of microbes, it is fascinating. We're discovering microbes that aren't on humans anymore at all. Um, are they healthier or less healthy or different than, than the, the rest of us? Um, so this company's focus on skin, and generally speaking, the Yanomami have little to no skin disease at all. Okay. Um, but what about um, longevity, you know, life, you know, how, how old they live and stuff like that? Well, they live in a um, forest-dwelling kind of hunter-gathering um, kind of approach still, so their life expectancy is still quite low for other reasons. Um, right. When you think about the tree of life and just humans as apes, um, you know, people who have been through westernized culture and antibiotics for centuries, our microbiome is wildly different from people. So are there clinical microbiomists, microbiometists, 
you know, who, who treat people based on the microbiome now? Is that a field of not just uh, research, but actual medicine, you know? Um, the short answer is there are very few who are expert enough to make those recommendations, but this is probably as good a segue as any to talk about our true passion right now, which is our new company, People Science. The reason I say it's a good segue is that um, alternative medicines or health interventions that the consumer chooses without a physician, the, the science behind those is fascinating and profound but you can buy them without a prescription. So microbiome, probiotics, uh, you can walk into grocery store, health food store, and there's shelves and shelves of microbiome and probiotics, things like prebiotics, postbiotics. Um, and these are all intended to affect your gut or skin microbiome. Mm -hmm. That's intended to make you well. So it might help you with your digestion. It might help you lose weight. It might help you with your mood. And so that's just one example of an alternative medicine, and we'll touch on, touch on some others, where the consumers buying them, the, co the companies that are making them, you know, have great science behind them, but there's very little clinical research to support the claims or the products that they make. And consumers are dying to know which of these products will work for me and which of these products work in general. And so that's what our, our new company, People mm -hmm. Sciences, focus on is helping the consumer answer that question, what works for me? and what works in general for inventors of these medicines. Is, th is there a, a way to sequence someone's DNA or microbiome to say, and compare it to a perfect microbiome to say, you need to get to this and we can do it with this? Do we have that yet? Or we're still trying to figure all that out? Oh, no, we, we absolutely have those tools. So you can shotgun sequence the entire microbiome population on your skin or in your gut. You can send away your poo. For, I think it's many companies will do it for $99, similar to 23andMe for your genome. You can send away your microbiome to be sequenced. It'll tell you every single microbe in your poo or on your skin. We've published many papers on it, uh, multiple patents around skin microbiome and how healthy skin has one type of microbes, diseased skin has another type of microbes, and where those microbes have come from evolutionarily. So... You told you told us you told our pre med students about a, a story you had and I and if you don't mind sharing it a little bit I'd I'd love to hear it. Yeah, no, I'm happy to happy to share it again and um and maybe kind of expand upon it with kind of our own experience and our philosophies on this. Um, so I guess I'll I'll step back a few thousand years first. Hallucinogenic or psychedelic plants and molecules have been around for millennia. Most advanced cultures have had some relationship with some hallucinogenic um, medicines, for lack of a better word. Um, and most of them have been plant-based or fungus-based. So ayahuasca is a very complex formulation from the indigenous peoples, South America. Um, psilocybins and mushrooms, um, cannabis and cannabinoids. Almost every culture around the world has some documentation of using some of these either as a medicine or a rite of passage. So the indigenous peoples of the Americas um, uh, had different forms of peyote and things like that. Um, and it's really only the last few decades uh, since the, quote, war on drugs in the United States that these molecules and these plants have really been boxed up and taken away from humans to use as medicines or uh, 
or ways to advance wellness. And by wellness, you can ask, well, what is wellness? Wellness is a healthy state of mind, a healthy body. And in today's world where we're overwhelmed with technology and the stress of life and everything else, it's no wonder that you are still seeking like some form of like resetting, like because most cultures have had that and we're the worst culture of them all now because of technology and the intensity of life. And we have no release except this alcohol, like it's an awful drug. The, the use of psychedelics and psychotropic medicines um, by, by cultures and elders in a responsible way, we think is an important part of freedom. Um, and it's the freedom to inquire, inquire about your own wellness, inquire about your own future and your own society, your own community. Um, you know, there, there are certain drugs that have more intensive risks, which I'm not going to talk about very much. Opiates are one of them. Cocaine and stimulants are another. Alcohol is another horrible drug. Admittedly, in small doses, it's a nice social lubricant. Um, but when when talking about psychedelics, I'll say personally, um, I had the luxury of having some incredibly tuned-in friends um, and mentors in college um, and got to experience quite a few um, psychedelic medicines in college. I'll, I'll I'm totally on- jealous. I'm to- uh, well, I hope my kids don't listen, but I'm a little jealous. <laughs> well, it, it's an interesting thing because part as a parent now, like how do you counsel your kids? What is the right age for cannabis? So it's well-known cannabis is not great for, for high school kids, um, teenagers, even college kids. Yeah. And so most of these things are meant for the adult transformation. Like they're meant to help you into become your full human. Um, And you got a lot of brain shaping up to do when you're a teenager and college kid. You know, I had I had a wonderful experience with um, psilocybin, or I should say, mushrooms and LSD in college. Um, I I don't pretend to say I'm unique. Like there are many wonderful people, brilliant thinkers, and and normal people who have used these things to the to their benefit and to their own maturation as a human. Um, but in um, in the midst of my MD PhD program. Um, you know, I was four years in, so two years deep into my my PhD um, dissertation, and um, I had kind of an existential crisis, um, and i i became I had become such a reductionist scientist that I lost sight of the humanity of why I was doing the science. Like, I would work sixteen hours straight in the lab trying to get little black dots on gels to mean something. So I had kind of an existential crisis and I, I ended up quitting med school and grad school. Um, and I, I had a wonderful mentor at the time who said, you know, I see your vision. I know what you want to do with your life, but go ahead, take your time and, and sort it out. And his name is Charles Sawyers. And I'll never forget what he said as I was leaving. He said, take your time, think about it. But the credentials and the process of getting these degrees, if you want people to listen to your vision, you will value these degrees and this process. And so I, I quit anyway, and I got in a pickup truck with my surfboard. So you quit med school. You you said, med school, I'm done. All done. Okay. <laughs> um, I put all my belongings into a storage unit. I got in my pickup truck with my surfboard and guitar, and I drove south into Mexico alone. <laughs> 
And that's after four years of college and how many years of med school? Two years of med school and two years of grad school. Wow. So after eight years of trying to get to where you were, you're like, I'm done. Yep. <laughs> okay. I, I got to go figure it out. Um, so I ended up driving alone, occasionally uh, running into friends in different parts of Mexico, but mostly alone interacting with the Mexican people, um, mostly small villages, beach towns. And they would take me in, they would teach me songs on the guitar, teach me recipes, teach me Spanish, etc. And <clears throat> about five months into it, um, I was in the middle of Mexico uh, in a town called Real del Catorce. Um, and this is in a part of Mexico which is still um, populated by the indigenous peoples. And peyote is still legal there as one of the medicines of the culture. And so I befriended some, some of the local folks, told them what I was doing, driving around, trying to figure out my life. These, this group of farmers. How old um, were you? How old were you? Let's see. Uh, four years in. So probably about 24. Okay. Um, and so these, um, these wonderful guys, they were all guys. Um, they gave me these three buttons, they call them the small cacti of peyote. And they said, you take these cacti and you go up that mountain over there and you eat them and you stay up there by yourself and go ahead. <laughs> and this is all in Spanish. And um, I, I flew in Spanish, so it's fine. But um, I said, okay. And so you can imagine I'm in the middle of nowhere all by myself. They say, take these plants and go up that mountain and eat them. And that's all the instruction I got. So I did. I, w I climbed the mountain. Um, I sat on the hillside and I ate that. Um, and I became a pinto horse um, galloping across the desert. Uh, I vomited a lot. <laughs> um, I stayed up all night in and out of um, deep transformative hallucinations about with deep meaning. And in the end of it, it taught me about the humanity again. Like it let me see clearly why my skills and my experience and my vision and mission were important to, to humans and humanity and our community. And when the sun came up, I saw very clearly what my role was and what I was about to do. I got back in my pickup truck and I drove straight home. Um, I, I did stop in New Mexico to visit a mentor for a couple of weeks um, to kind of recalibrate. Um, but, but generally I came back to Los Angeles. Luckily I hadn't burned any bridges. The med school and the grad school took me back. Um, and I finished my MD PhD degrees under this new vision of like, why, why do I do anything? Why do I get up in the morning? And it's for our community and for our society. And I have had the luxury of being educated and given all this time and opportunity to make change through science. And, um, and it, it's some form of responsibility, uh, but also just a true opportunity and luxury to, to participate in, in this wonderful time of humanity um, where science is there to support us and help us evolve um, the social fabric of what we're doing. It, it's it's powerful um so it it did start i guess that was 25 years ago um and along the way um 
you know, we've come to appreciate the role of these medicines um, in mental health and wellness. Um, if I just touch on one example of a, a different psychedelic medicine than peyote, and I will say all all the medicines are quite different and should be respected and appreciated through their own lens. But um, the the group called MAPS, uh, Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, they've been plugging away at the basic research of these medicines for decades. And we're at the cusp of bringing MDMA or commonly known as ecstasy to market through FDA approval. The phase three trials are almost done. The phase two trials, MDMA-assisted psychotherapy, cured, full cure, full stop, 70% of PTSD patients, not after three treatments, not just you chronically take it, not just a tiny fraction of people, not just somewhat better, full cure, full stop, 70% of PTSD patients with three sessions of MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. If people don't take notice of that one ramp of one of these molecules to make our world better, you're just missing what's happening. Like the world of using these medicines, plant-based alternatives or other psychedelic medicines like MDMA and ketamine, these are real medicines that have been shelved and blocked from being used for decades now. And it's not surprising that we have a lot more mental illness. And right now with the social unrest and the racial injustice, and COVID-19, we have our hands full of how to reset our social fabric and the mental health and mental wellness of, of the people. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. What, um, you know, one thing <clears throat> about you that, I, that I've noticed is you've really, it sounds like you've really been blessed by having mentors, um, which I think is, is I'm envious because I, I feel like I, I've kind of, maybe I've had some mentors along the way, but I, I have, it's more really, and I think one of the nice things in terms of a research career is often to be successful, you know, there's always a mentor with a mentee, kind of like, you know, Star Wars, you know, like the, yeah. um, and, and I, I think talking to a lot of different doctors through this pre-med program, I've noticed a lot of the people who have had great success have been, have both had great mentors and then also have been mentors themselves for, for others. And I, and I think listening to you talk about your journeys and everything, I, I definitely hear that, that that's been amazingly helpful for your career. Yeah. I, I fully acknowledge and, uh, and love that luxury that I've had. Um, it's not, it's not to say you need a PhD to be a, a scientist. Um, PhD stands for doctor of philosophy and philosophers are known to sit around and talk about philosophy and mentor each other. Right. And that's one of the things of science is you have that opportunity to talk to each other at length and learn from each other in the trenches of the hospital. It's more of an apprenticeship. Your mentors are teaching you like how to do, not how to really think and how to right. be. Um, but I mean, I've been mentored by world-class scientists um, like Charles Sawyers, I, it, an incredible human. I won't be surprised if he someday wins a Nobel Prize. Jeff Miller, my last mentor in my postdoc, incredible thinker. And to teach me about form of scientific thought, but also how to manage 
complex relationships of academia and, you know, how to get stuff done and think clearly. Um, it's interesting because at the time, you know, most of the time you don't know you're being mentored, <laughs> like the best mentor, you would never know they're doing, they're doing it. Um, yeah. and, and, but when I look back, um, I just, I'm so grateful for all the mentors I've had and to top it off, um, you know, as we age and kind of realize our, the, the moments of teachings and learnings, you start to quickly realize you're, you're really learning from everyone around you. I learned from you. Um, I learned from Alan and my co-founders. I learned from my two-year-old son. Um, so the true learner is the form of, of the best recipient of mentorship. Um, and I mean, maybe that's, maybe everyone doesn't have the, that kind of thoughtfulness around absorbing from everyone around you. But ultimately, if you think of any organism, we're simply a reflection of every input we've ever had. And so if you surround yourself with great people, um, you know, that's hopefully the best you can be. Your philosophy is very microbiome-ish. <laughs> I tend to surround myself with slime. <laughs> <laughs> so this was amazing. This was exactly what I wanted to do. And I, and I am so appreciative of you coming on and talking to us and, and sharing that experience. I think the whole people science thing, I think we should maybe come back another time and, and talk about that as a, as a part two, if that's okay. Yeah, because this was awesome. I, 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 you're, you're my new guru, shaman, <laughs> sensei, whatever you want to, uh, my Bodhi Vista, you know, this was great. Yes. Thank you for mentoring us through this. <laughs> and thank you. I've yeah. learned a lot. That's it for this week. Thanks for listening to Gross Anatomy and be sure to subscribe to our podcast. so You can check out more episodes on the evolving sights, smells, and sounds of medicine. Gross Anatomy is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition.